0: Section 4 of The Life of Viscount Palmerston by Lloyd Charles Sanders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Belgian Independence, 1830-1833, to 1833, Part 2. The passage was written under somewhat abnormal circumstances, when france was spoiling for a fight as the irish say and it seemed to be quite uncertain with which of her neighbours she proposed to pick a quarrel but it is capable of general application as well and mutantis mutandis embodies lord palmerston's views of the true attitude to be adopted toward russia the other power with whom england is inevitably at variance in nine european crises out of ten and whose inevitable advance toward the frontier of India he foretold as far back as 1847. Even those who object to his policy on the ground of its expansiveness must be willing to acknowledge its honesty and success. He, quite as much as Prince Bismarck, was a believer in the principle of do ut des, and he had little confidence in sentiment as a permanent bond of union between nation and nation les peuples n'ont pas des cousins was one of his favourite maxims he held that hope and fear were the mainsprings of diplomatic action not a utopian belief in the perfectibility of the species that arguments of the prophet and the divine were out of place in dispatches addressed to metternich or as to its success, it is enough to remark, without discussing might-have-beens, that as long as Lord Palmerston directed foreign affairs, either as foreign secretary or prime minister, England avoided war and played a prominent and creditable part in nearly every crisis. There was something in that, whatever the Cobdenites might say. In his latter days, lord palmerston was accustomed to say that of all his achievements the one of which he was most proud was his treaty with brazil for the suppression of the slave trade but the suppression of brazilian slavery must have come sooner or later and it is to independent belgium that we must look for the most conspicuous and artistic monument of his diplomatic genius the revolt of Belgium from Holland, which had taken place during the last days of the Wellington ministry, was obviously completely destructive of one of the most carefully planned of the arrangements of 1815. It was the object of the statesmen assembled at Vienna, as it had been the object of Mr. Pitt before them, to create a strong monarchy on the northern frontier of france as a barrier to french aggression belgium and holland were therefore united under the sovereignty of the house of orange and an impregnable line of fortresses were constructed along the southern frontier of the kingdom of the netherlands at the cost of the allies and under the superintendence of Wellington. Unfortunately, the Union proved one of hands, not of hearts. The Belgians found themselves deprived of their just share of office and representation, and saddled with more than their fair share of debt. They were compelled to use the Dutch language in their courts of law, and were forced to submit. To the systematic appointment of Protestant teachers in their seminaries, always full of sympathy with French ideas, they naturally found in the July Revolution of eighteen thirty an example that must be followed immediately and at all hazards on the twenty eighth of August. Brussels, inspired by the patriotic strains of Massaniello, rose in revolt and the example of the capital was speedily followed by the provinces fortunately for belgium the autocratic powers were too busily employed in making head against the revolution at home to be able to send troops to the assistance of the dutch government the creators of the revolution seem indeed to have chosen the moment for action with extraordinary skill for so weak were the northern powers that we find lord palmerston writing to lord granville that they would have a great difficulty in bringing into the field a force at all adequate to make an attack on france a statement which is of some importance in forming an estimate of the wisdom of the policy of balancing western constitutionalism against northern autocracy Lord Aberdeen, though he disapproved of the revolution, bore too much good sense to give an affirmative answer to the appeal of the King of the Netherlands. Instead, he hurried on the meeting of the conference, which had been summoned to London at the instance of the King, and the representatives of the powers promptly concluded an armistice between the belligerents. It was at this stage of the negotiations that palmerston replaced aberdeen at the foreign office and began his great career as foreign minister of england the independence of belgium which hung doubtfully in the balance while lord aberdeen was at the foreign office was now in some form or other assured though breathing time had been gained the situation was evidently full of difficulty there was a strong war party in the French chambers, anxious to send armed assistance to their Belgian neighbors, and looking for their reward in the destruction of the barrier fortresses and a considerable rectification of the French frontier, if not in the absolute annexation of Belgium to France. There was also a possibility that Louis-Philippe, wishing to secure popularity for his new dynasty, would play into the hands of that party, even at the risk of war with England. Fortunately, however, the king of the French had too much common sense, and Talleyrand, his minister at London, held so firmly to the view that a good understanding with England was a vital necessity for the Orleanist monarchy, that he was ready to disobey his instructions rather than cause a serious rupture. With moderation in the ascendant on the French side, Palmerston had little difficulty in gaining the consent of the Conference to a principle of separation under which the powers declared that Belgium should form a perpetually neutral state and guaranteed its integrity and inviolability. This important declaration was accompanied by another that the powers in these arrangements should seek no augmentation of territory. It was not without considerable difficulty that the English minister succeeded in obtaining Talleyrand's consent to the latter stipulation. The Duchy of Luxembourg had taken part in the rebellion against the King of Holland, but though he was its ruler, it belonged not to Holland, but to the German Confederation. Palmerston's idea was that if the King of Holland would cede Luxembourg to Belgium, the Belgians might consent to place his eldest son, the Prince of Orange, on their throne. Tolerant's solution of the difficulty was that Luxembourg should be handed over to France, as the French frontier was very weak on that side, and if this was impossible, that France should at least receive the towns of Marienburg and Philippeville. Palmerston thereupon gave him a lecture on the impossibility of a continuation of the Entente Cordiale if France intended to aim at territorial acquisitions, and by the 18 articles signed by the members of the Conference on January twenty-seventh, 1831, it was decided that Luxembourg should remain part of the German Confederation. These articles, which assigned to Holland, the limits which he possessed in seventeen ninety were accepted by the dutch plenipotentiaries the belgians however who had taken the bit between their teeth declined to accept the eighteen articles their chief grievance being that they were assigned an excessive share of the divided debt of the kingdom of the netherlands they proceeded further to assert their independence by electing a sovereign and with the obvious design of playing off france against the other powers they chose for their king the duc de nemours the second son of louis philippe the french king's well-known instincts as pere de famille were at once brought into full play and a grave crisis began which extended over several weeks nothing could have been firmer than palmerston's conduct he informed talleyrand that the acceptance of the belgian crown by nemours would be looked upon as a union between belgium and france and would be made at the risk of war with england he persuaded the conference to sign a self-denying ordinance by which they pledged themselves to reject a prince who should be chosen from the reigning families of the five powers louis philippe gave way for the moment and informed the belgian deputation that his regard for the peace of Europe rendered it imperative for him to decline the proffered honor. But the Parisians were wildly excited. The French government began military preparations on a large scale, and Count Sebastiani, the foreign secretary, let fall a remark about France being the dupe of England, which nearly set Europe ablaze. It was unlikely that Lord Palmerston would put up with language of the sort— Pray take care, he wrote to Lord Granville, our minister at Paris, in all your conversation with Sebastiani, to make him understand that our desire for peace will never lead us to submit to an affront, either in language or in act. And in a private letter to Lord Granville, sent through the French Foreign Office, where it was opened and read as a matter of course, Sebastiani was informed that we are not used to being accused of making people dupes. Footnote. This is a not uncommon method of giving a strong hint. and footnote. The resolute language had excellent effect, and the crisis passed off. Sebastiani lowered his tone, Talleyrand was unceasing in his pacific efforts, and a political change in France place at the head of the french ministry a resolute friend of peace in the person of casimir perrier sebastiani however retaining the post of foreign minister palmerston was delighted with the altered aspect of affairs and perrier on his side after throwing out a hint that france would like the duchy of bouillon directed talleyrand to accept without qualifications the bases of separation, as the 18 Articles were called. Further, the Belgians were informed that if they refused to accept the bases of separation by the 1st of June, the five powers would at once break off diplomatic relations. The Belgians failed to accept the bases of separation, and diplomatic relations were suspended. People thought they were mad but Palmerston observed a good deal of method and calculation in their madness. The probable explanation of their proceedings is that, confident of the support of either England or France, or possibly of both, they saw that everything was to be gained by playing a bold game. The next step taken by them was, at any rate, greatly to their credit. Of the candidates for the crown that were still available, they chose the most suitable leopold of saxe-coburg the widowed husband of the princess charlotte of england and the prince who had with remarkable prudence rejected the unstable throne of greece he was elected with the understanding that he should marry the daughter of louis philippe the wisdom of their choice of a candidate likely to propitiate both england and france became further evident when leopold declined to accept the crown until the belgians had accepted the bases of separation and thereby forced the powers to reconsider their ultimatum concessions were made Luxembourg, instead of being definitely assigned to holland was to be made the subject of ulterior negotiation so also was the town of maastricht the debt was to be divided into fairer proportions these resolutions were embodied in a fresh set of eighteen articles accepted by the belgian parliament and leopold became king of the belgians the commencement of his reign was not propitious as belgium had refused to accept the bases of separation so did the dutch reject their modification the king of holland resolved to follow up his determination by a bold stroke he declared the armistice to be at an end and dispatched an army of 50,000 men to the frontier. Thereupon began a fresh crisis of considerable acuteness. Without consulting the Allies, Louis-Philippe sent a force to the assistance of the Belgians under the Marshal Girard, and it was only by the exercise of the utmost promptitude that Sir Robert Adair, the English ambassador— prevented the outbreak of hostilities, which could hardly have failed to resolve themselves eventually into a European war. Even though the situation was saved for the moment, there appeared, for the second time during the negotiations, an imminent possibility of war between England and France. Marshal Gerard was in possession, and the French government declared that he could not possibly be withdrawn without a quid pro quo. While Perrier was plausibly explaining to Lord Granville that the departure of the French troops would be followed by the overthrow of his ministry unless some salve was offered to the vanity of his countrymen, Talleyrand was hinting at the partition of Belgium between France, Prussia and Holland, while Sebastiani, braggart to the last, though consenting to withdraw 20,000 men from Belgium, stated that a decision must be taken on the destiny of the frontier fortresses before the french army would entirely evacuate the country lord palmerston's reply was decided in the extreme he pointed out to lord granville that the only value to england of perrier and his cabinet was that they were believed to be lovers of peace and observers of treaties but if they were to be merely puppets put up to play the part cast for them by the violent party, what was it to England whether they stood or fell? To Sebastiani it was explained that the French pretensions with regard to the fortresses were utterly inadmissible. They had been built by the Allies at a great cost, and as a barrier against French aggression, and it was therefore impossible to make france a party to the treaty for their demolition to dismantle them while the french had them in possession would be a disgrace to the five powers at the same time palmerston promised that if the french would withdraw the powers would lose no time in beginning the discussion with leopold for the purpose of selecting the fortresses to be dismantled the weakest point in palmerston's position was that leopold was anxious that a portion of the french troops should remain for his protection but by the conclusion of a six weeks armistice between holland and belgium the foreign secretary was able to obviate any objections that might be raised either by the french or belgian governments against the departure of gérard his mingled conciliation and firmness gained the day and on the 15th of September, Talleyrand told the plenipotentiaries that all the French troops would be immediately withdrawn from Belgium. Though the obstinacy of the Dutch king delayed the final establishment of Belgian independence, there was no longer any danger of a rupture between England and France, and the rapprochement between the two powers greatly facilitated the last stages of the negotiations. A fresh set of conditions, known as the Twenty-Four Articles, were agreed upon by the Conference on the 14th of October and on the 15th of the following month, embodied in a formal treaty which the powers were to enforce upon Holland and Belgium if either of them refused to accept it. As might be expected, the conduct of the Dutch king had not strengthened his cause, he was now required to surrender part of Luxembourg in exchange for a portion of Limburg to give the Belgians a free passage through Maestricht and the free navigation of the Scheldt. It was in vain that during the following year Holland attempted to detach first Prussia and then Russia from the European concert. Prussia was afraid to act alone, and Russia was bound to Britain by pecuniary ties, which Palmerston seized the first opportunity to renew. At the same time, he made one more effort to smooth away difficulties, and his TEM, as the document was called, in which he attempted a final compromise between the rival governments, is one of the finest examples that the state papers can furnish of his power of manipulating the minutiae of diplomacy its ungracious rejection by the Dutch plenipotentiaries placed them completely in the wrong and enabled the Western powers to resort to immediate coercion. In September 1832, Dalleron and Palmerston had exhausted their stock of patience, and unsupported by the representatives of the other powers who withdrew from the conference, they decided that the time for action had come. The King of Holland was informed that if the Dutch would not retire from the citadel of Antwerp before the 12th of November, force would be employed. With commendable punctuality, a French army corps under Girard marched on Antwerp, while an English fleet blocked the Scheldt after a bombardment the citadel surrendered on the twenty third of december and though the king of holland declined to recognize the kingdom of belgium until seven years later its existence was none the less an assured fact the verdict of posterity has recognized that the creation of a free belgium was almost exclusively the work of palmerston and has reckoned it as perhaps the greatest of his many great achievements to the people of his generation it did not appear in quite so satisfactory a light it seemed to them that the employment of force robbed the arrangement of much of its credit the spectacle of two powerful nations combining to coerce a weak people is seldom calculated to provoke enthusiasm and it was remembered that if the Dutch had been left to themselves, they would have beaten the Belgians out of the field. Lord Palmerston, in a speech made on February 18th, 1833, justly complained that he had been ridiculed on all hands and held up to the derision of that house and that of the country. But the country was too enlightened to ridicule him for endeavoring to preserve peace by protocols, as it had been called the Honourable Member for Essex, had talked contemptuously of his hammering-out protocols. He found fault with the minister's adherence to Pacific councils, and he was no less displeased, it appeared, with the departure from them in the case of the attack on Antwerp. Whether they attempted to preserve the peace of Europe, so much endangered by the quarrel of the Dutch and the Belgians. Whether they endeavored to preserve peace by persuasion or by force, the course which they thought it advisable to pursue was equally distasteful to these honorable gentlemen. He trusted, however, that the House and the people would better appreciate their endeavors to prevent a war in Europe, and the conflict of political principles which would inevitably have arisen if such a war had taken place. Moreover, of the coercing powers, France had taken the more brilliant share in the combined operations, and the memories of Waterloo were too recent for the more hot-headed of Englishmen, among whom might be reckoned King William, to be able to contemplate with equanimity the spectacle of England putting up with the second place when France had the first. Indeed, they would barely contemplate the idea of an Anglo-French alliance at all. Footnote. This feeling found expression in H. B.'s cartoons, in one of which Lord Palmerston is depicted as a blind man, led by the French poodle Talleyrand to the brink of a precipice. End footnote. These vaporings found, however, but little voice in the House of Commons, where an attack on Palmerston's treatment of the Dutch. Which was made on the motion of Sir Robert Peel collapsed completely. The wise government of King Leopold completed the stability of the edifice which Palmerston had set up, his experimental little Belgian monarchy, as it was called at the time, and when the year 1848 witnessed a second opening of the floodgates of revolution, Belgium was one of the very few of the monarchies of Europe which was not temporarily submerged. Under the prudent rule of Leopold's son, the arrangement has held good down to our day, but its existence appears to be imperiled now that the nation, chiefly interested in its continuance, is inferior in military strength to those which might be disposed to its violation. This much must be said of Lord Palmerston's creation, even by the most hostile critic, that it was in accordance with justice, that it was in accordance with expediency, and that it has stood thus far the test of time. End of Section 4